Well, good morning, Vertical Life Church. It's, I'm glad to see everybody here today. It's good to be amongst God's people. You know, God's house is not the building you meet in. God's house is the people of God. And so when we gather together, we are the house of God. God's presence is here with us. And so I, it's always an encouragement to the heart to be here amongst God's people because we know that Jesus is here among us. Now, not only do we have God here among us, but today... Uh, we also kind of have another uh, special guest. I didn't know if you were aware. I didn't uh, uh, highlight them last week because um, for, for whatever reason I, I missed it. But today among you, we have a new married couple. Would please Mr. and Mrs. Michael Ermitz stand up. Now let's congratulate them. Now... Back where I come from, Michael, there was a tradition in my home church where I had to ask, we, had, we asked the husband, how long have you been married? Well, what's that? Almost a month. All right, well, work on that because I'm sure your wife would appreciate it. An exact date and time, those are things that you need to know. All right, we will, we will pray for you as you leave this place today because I'm sure you're going to hear about that later. Now go ahead and be seated. Thank you. We're excited to uh, celebrate that relationship and pray God's blessings over their family. Uh, my name is Joey. For those of you that are they're new, I see some new faces today. I'm the lead pastor here at Vertical Life Church. I just want to say welcome. We have a philosophy here. We believe everyone matters to God. Everyone. We, we sing about uh, the songs that we sing. Uh, we sing about his love, his never-ending, never-failing love. And he loves everyone equally and without measure. And, uh, and we hope that you sense that love today as we uh, sing and as we talk about his word and, and what God has prepared for you. And if you did not sign a connection card, inside your worship guide there's a connection card. If you could fill that out for us and drop it by the VIP table on your way out if you've not already done so. We have a little gift for you just to say thanks for coming and being here today. Some information about the church and how you can get connected and what Vertical Life Church is all about. And I believe if you, uh, if you start to come, you'll realize that this is home and uh, we're a family here that would welcome you to be here with us. And so uh, we thank you for that. Now we're continuing in the book of Psalms. We're in Psalms chapter 51 today. This is going to be kind of a two-part message. So we'll do the first part. It's the kind of the practical side of Psalms 51 today. And then we'll get into more uh, of the spiritual side, how it affects your relationship with God next week. But here in Psalm 51... Uh, we're we're going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart. One of the first messages I ever preached was on this subject. And partially because I was rebelling against God about not preaching. You know, a long time ago, you know, God began to really place on my heart this call to ministry. And one of my greatest and biggest fears still is today is public speaking. You might not be aware of that. And so when I first went into the ministry, I, I was the, the music guy. I led worship at the church and. I interviewed for this position with, uh, with a pastor, and I remember to this day sitting there across from him being interviewed, and I said, I will lead your music, but do not ask me to preach. Ain't happening. And lo and behold, this is what God ended up calling me to do. So, so I had some repenting to do in, in order to get my uh, life and my ministry right before the Lord. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, repentance today. Now, everyone, sooner or later experiences conflict. We have conflict at home. We have conflict at school. If you're a student, whether it be young elementary school or even up through college, we have conflict on the job. 
Conflict is inevitable. Matter of fact, my, my day job uh, is uh, partially working with uh, young people and coaching them, mentoring them on how to be successful in the workplace. And one of the things I have to continually mentor them is in the realm of interpersonal conflict, getting along with people at work and how you can continue to have a good work performance and work ethic in spite of those conflicts. Uh, but conflict is something that affects each and every one of us, no matter where you are in life, no matter uh, what you do. And uh, one of the, the, the things that affects us in a big way is unresolved conflict. Unresolved conflict, in my mind, in my opinion, is the primary killer of relationships. And, you know, I'm not talking about the petty things that, you know, are easy just to, to get over, like having a disagreement about you know, where you're going to eat after lunch today, not, not things like that, things that you can just shrug off. But I'm talking about the big issues, the big issues that do big emotional damage in a relationship, issues that are too painful to address, that it, it's just so uncomfortable, so painful that, that you don't even want to address it. You just kind of want to sweep it under the rug and avoid it because of how painful these issues are. And the problem with that kind of unresolved conflict is that that damage in your soul, that damage to your spirit, creates something. It's called bitterness. Bitterness. And bitterness left unattended will result in a toxic relationship and toxic relationships. You can be bitter with one person, and that affects your relationships with everyone. Uh, when bitterness is alive and well in a relationship, it causes all sorts of damage. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the word of the Lord records this. It says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. See, bitterness is a very sly and subtle thing because it camouflages itself. It infects and it attacks our lives from the shadows. We don't even know what's happening when it happens. I mean, think about this. We're talking about workplace conflict. You ever have that one person at work that just when you pull on the parking lot and you see their car, you're just like, oh, I don't want to go to work today. They're here. Well, why is that? Bitterness. Or how about when you're planning the holiday family get-together, like many of you probably already are now, and you're choosing who's going to sit at the table, and you're like, I'm not sitting by that one. I don't even want to invite, I don't even want to let them know the party is happening, right? That, that family member just doesn't need to show up. Well, why is that? It's bitterness. It's bitterness. The person you are most short-fused with, the person you are most irritable with, the person that ruins your day without even saying a word, it's the person you are bitter against. And here the Word of God tells us to pull out these roots of bitterness or they will cause even more pain than when the infraction or issue that happened planted it. And it will be you the one, are the one, you will be the one who causes that additional pain because that bitterness is left unplucked. Unresolved, unresolved conflict, when it plants bitterness into your soul, affects us in tremendous ways. And conflict happens 
in many different ways. It usually happens when one person is perceived to sin against another person, uh, like either by ignoring some well-needed advice or, or when someone speaks to you in a certain way you just didn't like, whether it was rude or, or maybe disrespectful. Conflict happens uh, in, in involuntary ways, meaning it's unintentional. When we feel like somebody does something to us, maybe they didn't even know that's what they were doing. It's like my, my, my kids, they have these annoying habits. Like my, you know, my son, Reese, likes to kick everything, like back of chairs, under the table, and, and all of these things, and, and continually does it. He doesn't even realize he's doing it until we're like, Reese, knock it off, Right? Sometimes people do things to that get on our nerves or what we feel are slights against us, and they don't even realize they're doing it. They're involuntary. And sometimes people do things that are malicious, which means they know it and they mean to do it. They're coming after you. They want to wrong you. They want to hurt you. But when those conflicts occur and they're not dealt with in a proper way, they become unresolved conflicts, and unresolved conflict turns into bitterness creates walls between you and the other person and there are two sides to the conflict there are two sides to the issues that we wrestle with there is the sinner side and the forgiver side someone is the sinner and someone is the forgiver and no matter what side you're on it can be difficult to honor the Lord on either side Luke 17 chapter 2 through 3 Jesus said this he says watch yourselves exclamation point he wants to really stress this. He says, watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. And if there's repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. Now, you and I, we all know, it's common knowledge. The last thing you want to do when someone sins against you is what? Forgive them. It's the last thing you want to do. No, you hurt me. You need to be hurt like I'm hurt. I don't want to forgive you. The last thing we want to do is forgive the person who wronged us, especially if they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. But Jesus says here, he says, if there's repentance, if there's repentance, it doesn't matter how many times a day they hurt you, you must forgive them the same way God has forgiven you. The Jesus' standard is that we walk in godliness, that we forgive others the way we've been forgiven. And that is so hard, and that is so difficult, especially with the perception in our day that repentance happens when someone says they're sorry. And you and I both know that sorry doesn't always cut it. Sometimes the wound is deeper than what an I'm sorry can fix. And when we're hurt, when we're wounded, when we're sinned against, we almost feel taken advantage of if sorry is all we receive in response to the wrong that's committed against us. And that's because we instinctively know that repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. There's more to it. And Jesus here in Luke, he says, if there is repentance, then forgive. Meaning there has to be more than I'm sorry. I'm sorry doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it for me and it shouldn't cut it for you is what the Lord is saying. So we have to ask ourselves is that if there needs to be forgiveness when repentance is present, then what is repentance? What is it? If I'm sorry isn't good enough, what is 
repentance for the sake of our relationships and for those that we love. What is this thing called repentance? And that's what we're going to discuss today. We're going to talk about repentance and looking at uh, Psalms chapter 51. In Psalm 51, this is what we call a lament. This is a song of grief, of mourning. This is a deeply troubling and a deeply sad song. And David, King David, wrote this song in response to one of his great sins. David was, was king over Israel. He wasn't where he should have been. He should have been on the battlefield, but he got lazy and he stayed back. And while he was in the kingdom, he saw his best friend's wife bathing on the rooftop. So he commanded the soldiers to bring her into his chamber. He forced her to uh, sleep with him and ended up conceiving a child. And because he didn't want to get caught over the egregious thing that he did, he concocted a plan to get Uriah, uh, the woman's wife, to, or husband, to come and, uh, and sleep with her. And then he could pass the child off as his friend's Son, but Uriah was an upright man, and he didn't go in to be with his wife. David got mad, sent Uriah back to the battlefield, to the front lines where the fighting was fiercest, to ensure his death. So David not only basically raped his friend's wife, but then he had his friend killed, murdered, in order to cover his sin. And David, thinking he got away with it, thinking he covered it up, like a lot of times we do when we sin and we don't want to be honest about it, God sent a prophet named Nathan to confront David about his sin. And when David finally realized he came to terms and grips with what he had done, he was a broken man. God had said that David was a man after his own heart, and I can imagine those words being seared into his mind as he's faced with his sin. And David was broken, he was sorrowful, and he went into mourning. And this song from Isaiah 51 is his outcry. It was written in response to his sin. It was his plea for forgiveness and reconciliation. And as David cries this song out from his spirit, he basically walks us through what I call four stages of repentance. There are four stages, and I believe that these are more stages than steps because steps you can just check off a list. And repentance isn't so cut and dry. It's not so easy. You can't just say, I'm sorry, and say you've repented. There's a process, sometimes a season you need to go through uh, to aid in the healing and restoration of your relationships in order to bring a restoration to what was broken in your marriage or in your family. You know, they say trust can be broken in a day, but it has to be rebuilt over a lifetime, and sometimes repentance takes a lifetime. It's true. Some of these stages take longer than others. But beginning in verse 1 of Psalm chapter 51, David introduces us to the first stage of repentance. Psalm 51, David says, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. The first stage of repentance is called conviction. Conviction, he says, Purify me of my guilt. Conviction is the season, the point where you feel bad, where you feel broken, where you feel ashamed of what you did. This is the point where when you realize what you did, you want to go run and hide and, and keep from being seen by anyone because of the shame that overwhelms you. 
You can even be broken and weep over your sin, realizing how bad you hurt somebody. Conviction is this first stage of repentance. It's the beginning of the process that lets you know your heart is ready for a change. That your heart is ready to walk through the repentance process. If there is no conviction, if you do not feel bad about what you've done, there can be no repentance. If you don't feel the weight of what you've done or what you've been doing or how you've wronged someone, there can be no repentance. Why? Because you're not really sorry. Conviction is a vital part of the repentance process. It lets you know your heart is in line with the truth. Once conviction sets in, it sets you up naturally to move into the next stage, which is confession. Verse 3 of chapter 51, David says this. He says, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. Your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Confession is where you feel bad, where you're haunted by what you've done. Confession is the stage where you don't just feel bad by of what you've done, but you actually agree with God. You agree with the person you wronged or you sinned against that what you did was actually wrong. You admit to it. You confess it. And this is so vital. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus talking to his followers and some spiritual leaders in verse 45 he says, a good person produces good things out of the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say overflows from your heart. If you cannot admit verbally that what you did was wrong, there can be no repentance. Saying, you know, and this is so common. Whenever you do something or you have a conflict with someone and they're telling you how you've wronged them and, and you say, well, if I did anything to hurt you, then I'm sorry. Or, or if you were hurt by what I said, then I'm sorry. See, that doesn't fly. Why? Because you're not actually admitting that what you did was wrong. What you're saying is that I don't think I'm wrong, but I don't like that you feel bad, so I'm just going to say this to pacify you. To kind of get out of being responsible for this conflict. Because more than likely, when you say, if I did anything wrong, you're just going to turn around and you do the very same thing again. Because you're not sorry. You don't feel bad. You don't believe you are wrong. Saying, if I did anything, what you're doing is you're pacifying the offending party without admitting wrongdoing to cover your pride. To cover, oh, I can't, I don't make mistakes. I, I, no, my intentions were good. That's not my fault. You're, you were wrong for feeling that way. See, if you're going to be repentant and confess, you must call your sin out by its ugly name. You must declare it. You must speak it out. In our home, we try to teach our kids when they have conflict and you know, one's always hitting the other or, or doing something mean, taking a toy from someone else, and, you know, they'll come up and, and they'll tattle on each other, or they'll both come up and kind of defend their, their case against the other. And, and when we discern which one was actually right, which one's wrong, we, we tell the one, okay, you know, ask, you know, tell them you're sorry, ask them to forgive you, and, and they'll say, sorry, I'm sorry. 
And we have to stop them. We say, no, don't just say you're sorry. Tell them what you did that was wrong. Tell them what you're sorry for. I'm sorry I took that toy, you know, without asking, blah, blah, you know, whatever the case is. See, sorry doesn't cut it. If you don't say what you did wrong, you're not in agreement. You don't believe that it was actually wrong. And I know this with my kids because when they just say sorry, when they have that famous eye roll and sigh after it, I know that they don't really mean they're sorry. They're like, please just quit yelling at me, Dad. Let me go. So there's no confession. See, when we confess, we need to say exactly what we did was wrong. We need to acknowledge it. You need to humble yourself enough to confess, yes, God, this is what I did. Yes, it is wrong. Your word says this. I did the opposite. I was wrong. Yes, wife, you are hurt by this. That's because what I did was insensitive. Yes, husband, you were disrespected by this? Yeah, I spoke out of line. I didn't say what I should have. Yes, friend, I was supposed to be there and pick you up. I wasn't there on time. I'm sorry. We need to call it out. The stage of confession is also the time that you ask for forgiveness. See, by asking forgiveness, you are also humbly placing yourself under the power of the party you offended in the hands of whom you sinned against. See, asking for forgiveness is another form of admitting your guilt, revealing that you actually have a desire to make things right, not just receive a get-out-of-jail-free card. That your interest is in repairing the relationship with the one who was wronged. Psalm 51, 14, David, speaking to God, he says, Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will sing joyfully of your forgiveness. And the question is, is why would he sing? Why would he sing when God forgives? It's because he realized he lost something. And if God forgave him, what he lost was going to be restored. And that was his relationship with God. And that's something to sing about. That's something to rejoice about. To know that the relationship that was broken in your life is going to be restored. That the weight of burden and guilt that you've been carrying will be lifted because the offended party will forgive it. You won't have to carry it anymore. That's a cause for rejoice. Rejoicing. The guilt, that shame, is many times what keeps us in the bondage of our mistakes. We would rather hide in shame then confess and be free. When you know the person you wronged has forgiven you, you don't have to be afraid any longer. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be afraid to be around them or feel that awkward tension whenever they enter the room or when someone brings up their name because everything is made right again. A truly repentant person doesn't just feel bad about what they've done, but they confess their sin, they ask for forgiveness so they can move into the third stage, which is restitution. Restitution. Psalm 51, verse 12, this is what David says. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. See, David, he says here, If you forgive me for what I've done, I'm going to prove by how I live that I will never do this again. I'm going to teach others not to walk the path that I walked, not to follow in my footsteps. I'm going to make my praise so public that people will know the good things that you have done in my life. I will no longer keep my life as my own. My life is going to belong to you. See, restitution is a way to pay back what was stolen, to 
Pay back what was lost and make amends to make up for what has been done. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist in his preaching, he says, Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. See, if we cannot earn forgiveness, we cannot earn it from God. It's grace. It's got to be given to us. Forgiveness is in the power of the forgiver. We can't do anything to earn God's forgiveness or forgiveness from the one we've wronged. They have to freely give it. And what restitution does or is, is a way for us to prove to the one who gives us that forgiveness that their forgiveness will not be wasted. It's not going to be wasted. Restitution is what begins to rebuild the trust that was broken to repair the relationship that was uh, broken. If there is no restitution then there is no evidence of a change, which means there's no evidence of repentance. Restitution is so vital to the repentance process because it proves that you've had a change of heart. You didn't just feel bad. You didn't just try to skim over that you're actually doing something about it to make sure the wrong never happens again. In the Bible, this is where, remember the story about Zacchaeus? Think back to your Sunday school days. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? You know that song? Wee little man was he? He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Yeah, that's Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. They were notorious for ripping people off. One day, Jesus came to town, and Zacchaeus climbed up a tree, and Jesus came over and said, Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house. Tell the wife to get things ready. We're going to have a party. I'm coming over. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house and changes the dude's life, transforms him. He becomes a new person. And Zacchaeus tells Christ, he says, Look, if I've ripped anybody off, I'm going to pay them back four times what I stole from them. That was his way to prove that he wasn't just talking. He wasn't just saying that things were different or that uh, he was sorry. He was proving by his actions that he was no longer the same person he once was. This is also the way Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he tells the thief, look, if you've been a thief, quit stealing. And work hard and then give generously. Pay back. Do more. Be generous. Quit taking from people and give to people. He says, if you've been a liar, stop lying and use your words to encourage and uplift people. You Use what God's given you for good things. And we can even say in our day, this is for the, the porn addict. You know, this is where you get rid of all the magazines and all your access to the internet via the smartphone. You say, you know what? A smartphone's not worth my relationship to my wife, my girlfriend, or my creator. I'm going to go back to the old flip phone because I'm not going to be that same person. I'm going to get rid of those cable channels. This is, you know, the person who has been flirting with someone at work who's not their spouse. Or maybe they even had an affair. And they say, you know what? Because I'm repenting, because my heart has changed, I'm going to quit my job, though I've been there for 20 years, and I'm going to start over to prove I'm not that person. Or I'm going to get a transfer and go somewhere else because I am not that person, and this will never happen again. Restitution proves you are not the same. You mishandled money and have created a hardship in your family. This is where you get a financial advisor and accountability so it doesn't happen again. These are proactive steps to prove your change of heart. Your behavior changes to match what is going on inside of you. This is where you begin to earn back the trust from those you betrayed, proving by the way you live that you'll be different from this day forward. And see, this phase, this is the toughest phase of repentance. This is the hardest phase. 
Because depending on the situation, depending on what you've done, depending how deep the sin is and goes, it could take years to overcome. Years. Tony and I will be married 13 years this January. It's amazing. People still look at me crazy when I tell them I have four kids. They're like, you have four kids? Yep, 13 years. We're good to go. But I can look back on my marriage from year one and the things I did and sins I committed, and there are still echoes of that sin today. Still. Sin has an effect. It goes deep. And the greater the offense, the greater the effect. It doesn't just stop because you said, I'm sorry. And the longer or the deeper or more difficult the situation, the longer the rebuilding phase or the restitution phase is going to be. It's going to take time. And many couples and friendships and relationships fail because they fail to complete this phase. They get tired of working on the relationship. They get tired of taking ownership for their sin or the problems in their life, the, the effects that sin has had. They get tired of saying, I'm sorry for the same things over and over again, even though the other person still isn't free from the pain. They get tired of admitting guilt, and they end up walking away from the relationship before the wound is ever fully healed. See, if you can recognize that the conflicts in your life, in your relationship, are a result of your sin, you continue to confess it, you continue to walk in restitution, eventually it's going to lead to the final and fourth stage, and that is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation is the goal of repentance. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus is talking about interpersonal conflict. He says this. He says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. The goal of repentance is to be won back. It's to be restored, to restore your relationships. You see, this is the goal. And many times, for us, we feel like the goal is getting them to admit they're wrong so I can lift myself up over them. But that's not the goal. The goal is a restoration of what was broken. And th the thing about it is God cares more about you reconciling your personal relationships than you coming into this room and offering Him praise. In Matthew 5, 23 through 25... Jesus said, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, you suddenly remember someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there, go and be reconciled to that person, then come back and offer your sacrifice to God. God cares more about what you do than what you say. You want to be my disciple? Go be reconciled to those you have problems with. You want to say you love me? You want to say that you're going to be my follower, that you're going to sing my praise and declare how great my name is? Okay, humble yourself and go apologize and repent of what you've done. Walk it. Live it. Be reconciled because that is where God gets the glory. You see, 
Jesus has given us a ministry as Christians. It's the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling the world to himself through preaching of the gospel and telling people about his love and how they can have a relationship with their creator. This is what we're supposed to be doing, and this is the kind of people we're supposed to be. How dare we not reconcile our personal relationships when that's our ministry given to us by God on his account? God cares more about the reconciliation than he does our worship. And the question I had was, why does God want you to reconcile before offering him praise? And the interesting thing is, in verse 25, Jesus says, when you're on the way to court with your adversary, it's the one you sin against, he says, settle your differences quickly, otherwise your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. You see, if we don't mend the rifts in our relationships, if we don't repent when we've sinned against other people, You give room for the accuser to create trouble in your life. This isn't just an accuser in a court of law. This is the accuser in the court of heaven. His name is Satan. The accuser is not just the person you wronged. It's the enemy behind every conflict in your life. And if God has good plans for you, good intentions for you, promises and a purpose for your life that are good, he knows that where there is conflict... Bitterness is soon to follow. And where there is bitterness, you can find the enemy happy at work. Working to undo everything God has planned for your life. When you neglect to reconcile, what you're saying is, Satan, I give you authority in my life. I submit to your will in this situation. And you make him a God in your life, granting him authority over that relationship, and you make him a happy camper. But see, God doesn't want to share his place in your heart with anyone else or anything else. He loves you too much. And he knows that when you begin to share the throne of your heart with something other than God, you make things more difficult for yourself. You bring hardship into your life. And for reconciliation to work, Jesus said, both parties have to be at work. The sinner has to be convicted has to confess and be walking in restitution, and the sinned against needs to be walking in forgiveness. And some of us here in this room today have some repent, we have some repenting to do because we were the sinner. We sinned against someone, and we've not repented. But some of us have some repenting to do because we were supposed to be the forgiver, and we didn't really do any forgiving. We became the sinner based on our response to the other sinner. This is why Jesus said in Luke that we need to watch ourselves because sin lies at the door of our heart, ready to show its ugly face any given second. And when we feel just a slight justified because of the offense against us, we can just as easily become the offender as the one who offended us. We can become the sinner just as the one who sinned against us, who's trying to repent of what they did. And we sin against them and how we hold their actions up over their head, constantly beating them down with their failures. See, it's one thing to point out what someone did to draw them to repentance. It's another to continually rub it in their face and hold it against them after they've confessed. 
God's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is that there would be no record of wrongs. He keeps no record of wrongs for those who are loved by him because where forgiveness reigns, wrongs are forgotten. This means you don't forget it with your mind. It means you proactively forget it with your actions. You choose not to hold it over their head. Now, I'm so glad that God doesn't do that against us. Psalm 103, 9 and 10 says, He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He doesn't punish us for all of our sins, and he doesn't deal harshly with us as we deserve. Our pride says, punish them. God's grace says, forgive them. When our conviction moves us to confession, confession to restitution, our God moves us into reconciliation. He cleanses us from all wrongs. He cancels the record against us. He welcomes us to himself as a father welcomes a child. And he wants us to forgive others the way we've been forgiven. The reason so many relationships end prematurely, the reason why marriages fail, friendships end, is because we don't practice repentance and forgiveness very well. It's the leading cause of the disintegration of relationships, whether it be a friendship or a romantic relationship or even a bond between family members. It boils down to repentance and forgiveness. That's because we're severely flawed human beings. It doesn't take long for conflict to show its ugly head in our lives. And some of you here today, you have been wronged. You have been wronged by your parents. You've been wronged by a brother or a sister or a friend, or a boss, a coworker, a spouse. And because that conflict never really got resolved, there's been a wedge between you ever since. And bitterness, bitterness's roots have been able to grow down deep and strong in your heart. And if that relationship's not dissolved already, that wedge will continue to grow as distrust and negative feelings Continue to feed it until one day you separate ways, have nothing to do with each other ever again, leaving only pain and bitterness towards that person to grow and fester in your heart, giving all sorts of room for Satan to work and move. That doesn't honor God at all. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, but because we are too prideful and our hearts to repent, too prideful to forgive. Many of our relationships in our lives fall prey to the enemy's plan to steal, kill, and destroy. But if we would be people of repentance and people of forgiveness, not only would God get glory with our lives, but our lives would impact the lives of other people. Psalm 51, verse 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will what? Return to you. You see, if I want to see the lives of others changed, then it has to begin with me. I have to allow the Spirit of God to work in my heart, to change my heart, to walk me through the stages of repentance so I can close the door to the enemy. And when God closes the door to the enemy in your life, the door opens to God to use me to impact the world around me. If I want to see the lives of others change, if I want to see people come to faith in Christ, if I want to see God blow up in a big way in my life, then I need to surrender my life to him. And say, God, I'm willing, in obedience, to seek out those relationships that I've allowed to go unresolved for so long. 
submit myself to you so that you can do amazing things through my life and in theirs. Questions for you today, church, is who do you need to be reconciled to? Think about it. Who in your life do you need to be reconciled to? What relationships in your life have you allowed Satan to rule over? Today, repent. Repent to the Lord. The Spirit of God is working in this room. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. I know the Spirit of God is working in this room. As we just even ask the question, I know the conviction is all over the place. There is conviction in this room. You know who you need to be reconciled to. You know what relationships you have given over to the enemy. My challenge for you today is to start with repentance. Don't just feel bad about it. Do something about it. And you can start by confessing your guilt before the Lord and allow him to begin that work of change in your heart. And then when you leave this place, you can begin walking in restitution by seeking out the people who you've been at odds with and work to reconcile them. And as you submit yourself to the Lord, you can watch as he begins to bring healing to those wounded areas of your life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, in just a moment, when the band begins to play and sing, I'm going to invite you to stand up where you are as an act of faith and in repentance and make your way down here to the first row of seats and just give your heart to God. Just confess the areas of your life you've been letting the enemy have authority in God and just ask God to forgive you and begin doing a work in your own heart so that you can bring reconciliation to those relationships and give him ultimate glory. Father in heaven, we just submit ourselves to you in this place. Though it may seem scary, though the pain of those situations, we might be feeling even more intensely now than we have in a long time because we're faced with a choice. Do we honor and obey you or do we cling to our pride and remain the same? So God, I pray for everyone wrestling with decision today, God, that they would submit themselves to you, God, they would humble themselves to you, and they would respond and allow you to begin doing an incredible work in their lives. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you need to come forward for prayer, now is the time. You come.